Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Love Club, a place where boss babes share their stories to empower women. Welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. I'm your host, Belle Crawford. Join me for a podcast series where we'll hear the stories of girl boss women who are doing super cool things with their lives. We'll find out how they've done what they have, their self-love and self-care practices, and they'll share their tips to empower you to live your best life. Tony Street is one of New Zealand's most loved broadcasters. Growing up on a dairy farm in Taranaki, Tony moved up the ranks at TVNZ as an intern, sports reporter, commentator and presenter on the channel's top shows. Tony now hosts Breakfast Radio while working part-time on TV and balancing out mum life. Tony battled a life-threatening autoimmune disease which led her to have her third child by surrogate. We're so lucky to have Tony share her story so openly on the Self Love Club podcast. Tony, welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. I know you're a very busy lady, so Pleasure. I really appreciate it. It's really nice to actually stop and just have a wee chat because normally <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah, so a lot of people will know who you are, but for maybe those who don't, tell us about yourself, who you are and what you do. Okay, so I'm a broadcaster. I think that's probably the best way to describe me. I'm also a journalist, so I studied um, journalism at school. I actually studied a commerce degree before that, um, and I started as an intern at TVNZ when I was about 21. And over the years, I'm now 36, I um, I went through the newsroom as a one news reporter and I started getting presenting gigs along the way. I was very much into sport. So I got my big breaks, I guess you could say, um, commentating the netball, hosting the Silver Ferns. And then I've been in radio for the past three and a half years. I made the transition um, from Seven Sharp to hosting uh, the hits with Laura Sam and Tony. Yeah. And that would have been a bit of a, I mean, you still do a bit of TV, which is great to be able to do both, but was that a big change for you? Yeah, it was a big change because that's all I'd ever known. I went straight from university to TVNZ and, I, and I'm and i still there um, in a part-time capacity, but I've been with that company for nearly 15 years. So to change a job, it was literally my first job change from one company to another. So it was quite a major. And one of the big reasons I, I made the change was uh, to try and create more balance in my life with being a mum to three children. Yeah. And it was the best thing I ever did. And I do feel like now I've kind of got, I've got the best of both worlds. I can still do a bit of the telly stuff and, um, and have regular radio in the mornings. Yeah. We'll talk more about that soon, but take us back. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Uh, so I grew up on a dairy farm in Taranaki, which is about, uh, it's a place called Tarurutangi, which is 10 minutes out of New Plymouth. Um, very much a country upbringing, you know, uh, bare feet out in the out in the milking shed, um, <laughs> went to the local primary school and um, I basically was just the sporty kid at school. I played cricket and netball and surf lifesaving and I played rugby. Um, my dad coached all of my teams and it was very much the sporty kind of Kiwi 
kid upbringing, um, not a lot of the big city lifestyle, which is kind of what I lead now. <laughs> so very, very different. Yeah. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were younger? Did you have any idea? You were quite sporty. I know you played cricket as well. Yeah, I did. So my mum took me, well, I grew up with a sporty family. So we were the family that would get up in the middle of the night to watch the All Blacks. Mum took me to some netball games and I remember seeing April Itamir and Bernadine Oliver Kirby and thinking, oh my God, that would be the dream job because they get to be around sport and they also get paid to do it. And so I always had grand designs of becoming a silver fern, but that kind of fell uh, to the wayside. Um, I did play representative netball, but um, I thought the broadcasting side of thing was really cool. And it was always a dream from probably when I was about 10 years old. Mm. Yeah. So how did you make those steps from going, you know, from growing up in Taranaki to then going, okay, I want to get into TV like and journalism. What did you do? What steps did you make? Um, at school, I um, focused heavily on business subjects because I always, for some reason in my head, I thought if I can get a commerce degree behind me, that'll give me lots of options. And I don't know really why, because I haven't used my commerce degree. It's still sitting there. Maybe one day I will. Um, I... I decided I wanted to go to university. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to study because career advice wasn't really a thing when I was coming through. I mean, I my seventh form year or year 13 year was in 2001 and you didn't really get a lot of a steer. So I didn't really know what I was going to do at university. I just knew I wanted to go because I thought mm. that was a good idea. And um, when I was at the end of sixth form, I was playing representative cricket down in Christchurch and one of the oh, the New Zealand coach said to me, um, we have this scholarship at a, at a university called Lincoln. It's 30 minutes out of Christchurch and they have the high performance cricket centre there. You should apply for a scholarship. And I didn't know they had scholarships. So I decided, oh, that would be a great idea because you get your three years of university paid for and you get to play and get coached in cricket at the same time. So Perfect I, for what you yeah, wanted. Yeah. So I applied and I got it. Yes. And so I this Taranaki girl moved all the way to Lincoln in the <laughs> South Island and I started um, doing the scholarship. I did the commerce degree, which was one of the only, there was no journalism on offer at Lincoln. So I did the commerce degree, um, trained and played with a whole lot of the top New Zealand cricketers at the same time. And then when I finished university, I decided I still wanted to pursue the journalism dream. So I did a one year postgraduate diploma at a course that accepts 20 people when I got in. And that's what um, gave me the platform to be able to apply for an internship, which I eventually got at TVNZ. What was it like being this girl that was from a farm, a dairy farm in Taranaki? You went to a, like a, it's a farming area yeah. in Lincoln as well. Like that's a farming place. And then moving to, was your internship in Auckland for TVNZ? Yeah, it was. What was that like, arriving in the big oh, smoke, you know? It was terrifying. Um, if you grow up in a place like Taranaki, Aucklanders are looked on as <laughs> Jaffers and a big city. And I never in a million years thought I would live in a city like Auckland and I don't know how I thought I was going to do journalism without living in a big city but anyway uh, and I remember when I came for my first interview walking through the doors of TVNZ was terrifying I went out and I got some new clothes so I looked like businessy <laughs> but it was very very overwhelming and it was just this big shiny place that you know you could see with all the satellites and I just remember being quite taken aback by the whole thing mm. and my interview went terribly um, they said to me that I wasn't doing the right course to get an internship at TVNZ and they asked me some really probing questions and I remember thinking during the interview I kind of got my back up a bit and had to defend myself and why I'd chosen the path I had to study and I got in the car and I cried to mum and said there's Aww. no way I need a new I need a new direction and then they <laughs> rang me the next day and said I'd got the in talk Auckland internship which was a massive shock yeah 
Wow. Yeah. I, 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 they're scary in those interviews. And I think they deliberately test yeah. you like that just to see how you'll react. Uh, but again, having to walk through the doors on the first day of my internship to this busy newsroom with all these hard out people, mm. like Peter Williams was in there, Donna Marie Lever, uh, Judy Bailey had just left and um, Wendy Petrie had just come back from maternity leave. And suddenly, you know, they're talking to you and asking for things in the newsroom and it's just quite bizarre. Yeah. What did your day-to-day look like as an intern there? Like what were you first doing when you started? Well, what you usually do is you go onto the assignments desk. It's uh, a a place where you sit and you monitor all the fire and ambulance scanners. Um, And then you have a rotation where you go on overnight shifts, which are the worst. You're there at 11 at night till 7 in the morning and no one else is there and it's just you in this lonely, lonely place. (laughs) Um, But again, I think that they designed that to test you to be like, well, you've got to work hard if you want to get one of the coveted reporting spots and you've got to do your time on Mm. on all of the pleb sort of things first. Uh, So I did that for six months doing overnight shifts, doing day shifts, doing super early shifts. And then I kind of worked out that my best way to get off that desk was to go via sport Mm. because not a lot of women wanted to do sport reporting at the time. And so I sidled up to the sports editor and said, hey, is there anything I can help you with? And he started getting me to do like little odd jobs of picking up interviews for the other reporters. And that's how it developed. Yeah. And so how did things progress from there? Because that's where you sort of got your in. Yep. Do they start getting you to report? And then you've got a lot of presenting work as well. I think you've got to be really, really proactive once you're in that newsroom because journalists by nature are very competitive and they all want to get the stories. So if you don't go with that, you literally get left behind. So what I tried to do on the side was come up with story ideas that might make it on the news. And I came up with a couple that were really good and did make it on the news. I didn't get to voice the tracks or be the person in front of the camera. I had to give it to another reporter. And I remember Rowani Pereira, who was a um, a, a journo for One News for years, always said to me, I'm so sorry, because she had to be the one that took my story that I'd worked hard on and voice it. But I didn't care. All it meant was I mm-hmm. had the right idea. It got on the news. And I actually did a story on my um, on my best mate who had collapsed during a half marathon with overhydration. And overhydration wasn't a, a thing at all at the time. And it was this big warning story. Be careful you don't drink too much water mm. if you're about to partake in a marathon. And that story got on the first break of the news. Wow. And so it was those sort of things that you did on the side on top of your normal job. I think that made them take notice of you. Mm. And then eventually um, you went through voice training. And then if you had a story and I remember saying, can you please let me voice this story? And they did one day on breakfast TV. And then once you've voiced one and they give it the tick, and you're allowed. Yes, the gates are you're open. In. Yep. And so take us through some of your first uh, presenting roles that you you took on board. I know there was a lot of like commentating and, yes. and sports things. So how I got my break into netball. So I was a sports reporter. I was on One News and it was all good. But my first actual on-camera experience came through the netball. And um, the head of netball at One Sport at the time uh, was looking for someone to step in at late notice. So the current host was down and they needed someone. She literally came down to the newsroom and said, does anyone interested in netball here? And I put up my hand and said, I am. You're like, I sit in there like, oh my God, this is like, this my, is my, moment. This is my dream. <laughs> and um, I got taken into a room and she gave me a, an audition commentating a, a game of netball. And I was literally doing it, I think a week and a half later. 
Mm, and wow. and it was a baptism of fire <laughs> and then I was on camera hosting this thing and they don't give you any training you literally just go and I think if you do it well they'll let you do it again and if not they like send you out the back door mm, yeah. and and it works and I, luckily for me I'd played rep netball my whole life I knew the game inside and out mm. so I'd kind of been preparing for you're this you're the moment. right person for it yeah I was because I hadn't known what you're talking about then yeah, it would have been very yeah. very obvious and yeah. so I got that chance to host the ANZ championship that then led to hosting the Silver Ferns tests and um, work just sort of came from there. I started hosting the ASB Tennis Classic and um, it was from those on-screen appearances that I managed to get the full-time uh, role hosting Breakfast TV. Yeah, what was that like? I mean, Breakfast TV is, I mean, for TV you have to get up so much earlier than for breakfast radio. Oh, yeah. At like 3.40 oh. my alarm used to go. And I remember the first time they got me to fill in and I was travelling back from Taranaki. I'd been down visiting my family and it was the four-hour drive and I got a call from Jo Mark Brown who rings you for the shifts at TVNZ and she said, um, I'm trying to remember who it was, Petra Baggist at the time, and she said, Petra's sick. Can you host breakfast tomorrow? And I just said yes and then got off the phone and went, oh, like, how am I going to do this? You know, it was just terrifying because yeah. I, I hadn't had any auditions, any practices. They were just getting people to have a go. And I did it that next morning. And it was one of the most terrifying things. Probably not as terrifying as presenting the sport news the first time. I think because breakfast, it's at 6am and it's quite a relaxed environment. Mm. You've got a co-host next to you. Reading the news is a whole nother oh, step yeah. up of scariness because you've got the newsreaders beside you. Um, it's a very sterile, no one's around type studio. And then the red light just goes on and you just... It's, yeah, it's quite terrifying. Yeah, I, I still imagine. get nervous when I read the news. Once I started filling in for Petra, they gave me the Saturday breakfast gig. So I was doing Saturday breakfast. I went on maternity leave thinking I'd take a year off. And literally the day I was due, October the 3rd, and I know this because my daughter was born the next day, um, literally the day I was due, they said, will you take the full-time position? We're changing the breakfast show up and we want you to host it next year and it was exactly three months after that after I had my baby that I would have wow. to be committing and it was a massive decision because yeah. I was a I hadn't even had my first baby and I didn't know how I was going to cope with being a mum yeah. but this was a dream opportunity and so we decided we would we would make it happen and just see how it went. What was it like having a basically a three-month-old and getting up at 3.40 and doing breakfast TV? What was that like for you? Oh, it was fraught with anxiety because luckily for me, I knew I could do the breakfast role because I'd, I'd done a year of, of Saturday at this point. So I was quite comfortable in front of the camera by now and I knew what I was doing but leaving your baby at um, 3.30 in the morning oh, when so you're a new mum. Well. I mean, it's the perfect job in hindsight because you get to be home by about 11, 12 o'clock. So you've got the whole rest of the day. Mm. But um, that separation anxiety was quite hard. And we had to, uh, my husband looked after my eldest Juliet for the first few hours until he went to work and then we had a nanny. And so trusting a nanny with your precious new baby yeah. was quite, like when they're that young was mm. quite a lot to get my head around. But luckily we found the most amazing person that stayed with us for like four years. So it was okay. Yeah. And so then what happened after that? Because then you ended up on Seven Sharp as well at night time. Yeah. So, so I, were you doing both ends or did no, you end up switching? Not at that oh, point. Feel. So I did a full year of full-time breakfast with Rawdon Christie and Sam Wallace as the weatherman and at the end of that year they decided that Seven Sharp needed new hosts and they asked me to move 
And I really didn't want to move at all because Mm. I just had this first year where I was settled and I loved my team and we were rating well. And I was like, I don't want to go to Seven Sharp because Seven Sharp wasn't rating well. And that was the whole reason they had to change it all. So I was very, very hesitant. But when your bosses come to you and it's essentially a promotion, you can't say no. So I had to take a leap of faith and and hope that it would all work out. And then I hosted Seven Sharp for four years and it rated and it was great. Yeah, with Mike Hosking with as Mike well. Hosking, yeah. I mean, that was terrifying in itself. What was it like working with him? Because he's a formidable force. I had never met him before until um, the day that we met to talk about the show. I'd only listened to him on Newstalk ZB and I knew a lot of him and I'd read a lot of what yeah. his opinions. Um, uh, the f- very first day we met was actually a photo shoot we did for Seven Sharp. So I went from not having met this guy to having to like – stand right next to him for photos which was so bizarre but he was wonderful from the beginning he was totally professional um his his motto from the very beginning was you just do what you want and I'll fit around you and it kind of stayed that way for four years that's cool yeah he was he was one of the most professional most easiest person people to work with which I know seems weird because he's so argumentative and that's good though it was he was brilliant to work for he really pulled his weight which was awesome yeah he works really hard oh he does I don't know how he does it I don't know how he doesn't just cark it to be honest did you prefer well yeah because he gets up so early I oh, gets up at three and for four years he did seven sharp at the other end of the day oh, as well yeah I don't know how people do that no I did it for one year double shift yeah what was that like because you were doing was that still doing was that doing breakfast radio and then seven sharp at night yes yeah. so um After I'd finished four years of Seven Sharp, I got an opportunity to do breakfast radio and I thought it would be a brilliant uh, career move for me to to get that skill. But I didn't want to let go of Seven Sharp because what if I was useless at breakfast radio and it all fell over? So I decided to do both and it was a really hard year. My husband took – he quit his job and he worked from home and if he hadn't done that, it wouldn't have been possible Mm. because we had two kids at at that stage. Mm. Um. It was your your. It's absolutely doable, but your life consists of work and work only. Mm. And I don't think that's any way to live. No, especially with a young family as well. And I know yep. you were after that balance. Yep. So I'd get home from breakfast radio and I'd spend a precious few hours with the two kids. And luckily for me, they weren't at school. So they were at home. Mm. So if they were at school, you wouldn't see them at all. Mm. But because they were at home, I'd spend those precious few hours in between. And a lot of people don't realise, but when you do seven sharp, you're in there at 2.30. It's not like you pop in at five or six yeah. o'clock. So that's most of the afternoon. So you essentially just had the lunchtime off work. Mm. which was manageable for one year, but I couldn't have done any more. Yeah, and especially if you want to, you know, have that balance with a family, which is very important to you, and you don't want to miss out on your kids' lives. No, not to mention you literally don't have any time for friends, like Mm. none at all, because (laughs) on the weekends you're so shattered, you spend the entire weekend recovering. Catching up on sleep, yeah. Yeah. What was it like letting go of the seven sharp, though? Was that quite scary for you? Oh, that was the hardest decision I think I've had to make in my career because who walks away from a primetime show that's rating well? Mm. You know, it doesn't exactly make sense. But I felt like even though it was a really hard decision, my gut told me I was making the right call. And the alternative was that I didn't see my daughter who'd just started school. And I was like, that's not acceptable to me to not see her till after eight o'clock at night. Mm. And it was either see my daughter after school or work till after eight o'clock at night. And it became a simple choice in the end. And I just had to back myself that it'd all work out. What's it been like working in the mornings and then having the evenings with your family? It is so luxurious. 
Like it really has changed our lives. Like I like to be the mum that can pick the kids up from school and that's what breakfast radio allows. And the downside is you have to get up super early and you do you are tired, but you're tired doing what you want to do. Mm. And to have to sit down and have dinner with the kids. I didn't do that for four years to sit down and have dinner. I mean it's I mean it's not luxurious. I mean they're feral creatures. <laughs> um, but but at least I'm there and I know it's gonna be short lived. I, I know that period will be small and then they'll become teenagers and then I won't have that back. Yeah. So it's worth every second of it. And I and that's why I think when people look at me crazy and think, why would you want to get up at 4am? It's like, well, I'm doing it because it works with the family. Yeah, and you can still do what you love. Yeah. While you were having this, you know, career where you're moving through the ranks at TVNZ, you were also having some health issues as well. Talk us through that because I know that was really, really scary and quite serious. Yeah, it was really serious actually. So I I had, while I was on Seven Sharp, I got pregnant with my second child, my daughter Mackenzie, and I went on maternity leave and I had a great um, pregnancy. I had a great time. We had her home for six weeks and it was all going well. And then my body basically, shut down and I went into organ failure when she was six weeks old out of nowhere and I was in hospital for two weeks and no one could diagnose me and it was mm-hmm. just horrible. We didn't, No one knew what was wrong and that was the worst part. There was nothing to treat because no one knew what it was but I couldn't eat. I was vomiting. I was having these intense stomach cramps. I knew something was going on badly in my body and they did the scans and they knew that my organs were failing but they didn't know why. Um, so I had my gallbladder out. I had streaking on my bowel. Um, I had to have nasal polyp surgery because all the um, nasal passages in my um, yeah in my navel nasal cavities all um, exploded basically and in the end I was just by pure luck my obstetrician who I had for my baby referred me to his childhood friend that he grew up with in Iraq that was a gastroenterologist I went and saw him and he thought he knew what was wrong with me he said I think you've got an autoimmune condition and that's what's putting you in organ failure you need to go and see the specialist so I did they diagnosed me and on the day he diagnosed me, he said, you'll probably have to start chemotherapy in three days. And it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And I went to this appointment kind of a little bit not thinking I was going to get a diagnosis. So it all sort of dropped like a ton of bricks. Like, I can't be doing this. I've got a six-week-old baby. What am I doing? Mm. Um, but what we decided to do in the first instance was go on super, super high doses of steroids, infusions. So you sit in a chair. It's a bit like chemotherapy, but it's steroid infusions. And luckily my body responded well to it and I was able to avoid the chemo. But it was really touch and go for a long time mm. um, because a lot of people that get diagnosed with this autoimmune condition – I have called Churg Strauss. Um, it, it hits their heart first, and it does. It, it has. It gives you irreparable damage. I was just really lucky that my pregnancy actually brought forward the symptoms, so I was able to be diagnosed a lot younger than most people are. That's so good because it is. It can be life threatening. Oh yes, people people do die from it, and people get yeah really bad heart conditions from it. So. The, the good thing about the, the condition is if you pick it up and get treated, you can stay in remission for your whole life. You just have to be highly dosed on steroids and you can get in, like right now I'm only sitting on five milligrams, which is like amazing. Mm. But for a long time I was on 40 milligrams a day plus getting a thousand milligrams worth of steroid infusions. Mm. Um, but I decided to keep working throughout it because 
the alternative was to kind of just to sit at home with my big steroid moon face, <laughs> wallowing in my own self-pity. And I decided I actually wanted to carry on doing what I loved. Yeah. The downside of that was people thought I was pregnant again. <laughs> oh, people just didn't I know, and not that, assume and that, those things. Yeah, well, yeah. that was part of the reason that I was open about the autoimmune disease because I wanted people to know I'm actually not having another baby, even though I did it eventually, but I'm, I'm just sick. And that is why I've got the swollen yeah. face. And actually, so many people seem to have autoimmune diseases now. I think it was really good that you were open about it because, you know, there are people that are going through it and people don't really speak about it a lot. No. So for someone they're seeing on the TV every night or every morning yeah. to speak about it, I think that's really important for those people that yeah. to and have someone that they can see that's doing well. Oh, they, they have something like that too. Yeah, and it was actually really important for me to have other people say that they had it as well. Mm. So I was getting all these messages, and this is why social media is so great, because you can actually get in touch with these people, um, particularly around the long-term steroid use, because mm. I really struggled with having the big swollen moon face and putting on, like I put on about 13 kilos, um, and I could not shift it at all. And I remember going to see a nutritionist that my specialist put me on to, and I'll never forget, she said to me, well, no one puts food in your mouth when you're on steroids. And I was like, really? Is that, is that, so all of this weight I've put on and this moon face is, is just me just not being able to control my eating. Um, but having now spoken to <laughs> multiple people that are being on long-term steroids, they all find the same thing. You put on weight easily, you eventually can get it off, but while you're actually on those high doses, it's very, very hard to manage your weight. Mm. And it was nice to hear that from other people to so that I wasn't only this weird yeah, person. Yeah, because you're probably trying to eat really well. I was trying, but you become ravenous <laughs> and it is really, really hard. Yeah. What is it like living on, I guess now, thankfully, you're on a smaller dose, but at the beginning, what was it like being on a really high high dosage what how did that impact on your daily life really weird because I was on the massive doses of steroids and I was also on this drug called mycophenolate which is an anti-organ rejection drug so um, people ha that have transplants go on that as well and it does it makes you go quite crazy and the symptoms literally say when you get given the sheet you will have rage episodes and so Mike Hosking would joke with me that oh you, you got your roid rage today <laughs> and I said watch out because I don't know what could happen here I might flip out one day at you if you say the wrong thing so we had quite we had quite a good, yeah. good joke about it but it did it did put you in quite a spacey um position like you just didn't feel like yourself yeah and like I remember um hosting one night and I started to get my my left eye clouded over and I was finding it quite hard to see the auto cue and so I went off air and googled it and a big symptom of long-term steroid use is that you get cloudy vision right. so I'd go see the optometrist and you know and then these yeah. the other symptoms are you get weakened bones so then you got to go see a bone specialist so the 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 going to all of the appointments and having to deal with all of the side effects of having the drugs that keep you alive I think is the exhausting part of it illness. yeah and so how have you managed to keep things in check and obviously now your steroid usage is down but yeah. how do you keep it all in check um I think what I've tried to do is to try and stay mentally as stress-free as I can because I tend to be someone that's a bit of an overthinker and I um, will stress about things that really don't need to be stressed yeah. about. So I really try and talk myself out of that sort of stress now to try and be like, it's not a drama, real dramas are happening, that is something that is not going to affect your life and to try and just take stock. 
I was always, I think when you get into the journalism field and there'll be lots of people that have high paced jobs, you go, 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 go. And when you stop, it's quite hard to relax. I really struggle to relax. So trying to give myself permission that it's actually okay just to Mm. sit on the couch. And I was even doing this yesterday. Um, The Oscars were on and I had about 45 minutes before school pick up. I was like, I'm allowed to just sit here on the couch. I've worked like all of the morning and I've done this and I've done this and I've prepped dinner. It's actually okay to just sit on the couch and watch the Oscars. Whereas before I would have felt so guilty that I had to fill that time with something else when actually our bodies need to know how to rest and just to be. So important. Yeah. And I'm really trying to, trying to get that through to my thick skull that it's actually okay. (laughs) Yeah, it is. You're right though. When you're an A-type and you're in those fast paced industries, you feel like you shouldn't be sitting still doing nothing because it's like, I should be filling this with things. But no, it's, I think one of the most important things, like you say, is rest so that you can actually perform at a better level with totally. those things. And, and it doesn't always have to be productive time. That no. Like yesterday when I sat down, I'd already hosted my breakfast radio show. I had sorted out what the kids were going to have for dinner. I'd been to F45, so I'd, I'd had a workout. I'd done emails and admin. That's a lot. Yeah, and when you look at it like that, you think, I've actually achieved a lot today. But I think we are in a society where everyone's trying to achieve more all the time. Mm. And I just, it's certainly not good for your health. And I think because we're seeing it a lot more, we're seeing what everybody's doing and people are posting their highlights a lot more. I think if you weren't doing a lot, you'd probably feel like you were being lazy. Exactly. And that's why I feel like um, it was quite a big crossroad for me when I decided to step away from Seven Sharp because I was essentially saying, I'm going to give up my career to get more balance in my life. And I'm actually not just talking about it. I'm physically going to do it. I Mm. have to resign to make this work. And so I I was quite proud of myself for doing that because the old me would have just tried to have trucked on and, you know, keep pushing and and tried to perhaps do both jobs for more than one year. And I don't know where I'd be if I decided to keep doing that. Yeah, your health would have probably it would have really suffered. suffered. Yeah. And the good thing is you st- you get the best of both worlds. You still get to do TV as well. Yeah, I still get to see all my old mates up there. And Seven Sharp, although the hosts are different, so many of the producers and cameramen and editors are the same. So it does feel like putting on an old pair of shoes yeah. when I go up there. It's so exciting. Yeah, yeah you, get, you get it all now. You get your family, you get to do the breakfast radio and yeah. you still get to do TV. I think good on you for doing that because a lot of people wouldn't – wouldn't do that. No, I mean, let's be honest. And I remember when I took on the two jobs, I didn't want to portray this image that, oh, this is easy. I can just do two jobs. When in reality, one job with balancing kids is a lot. Yeah. And so I was at pains to say that this is a short term thing and this is, I'm not really condoning this behavior that I'm doing. Yeah. It's just a means to an end. Yes, exactly. And then, so you had two girls and then you have gone on to have a little boy who is so cute, by the way. Thank you. And that was via surrogate as well. If yeah. you want to tell us about that, feel free. Otherwise it's fine if you don't want yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely yeah. will. Um, um, was uh, that due to your, your autoimmune yes. condition? So, so after I had Mackenzie and went through the organ failure, um, I had been very like honest with my specialist that I really, really wanted three kids. I'd always wanted a big family. And he said, well, if you want a third child, you absolutely cannot carry this child. You will die if you do this again. You saw what happened last time and all of the uh, scientific evidence shows that it progresses. So you get organ failure, one child, the next child, you know, you might not be so lucky. Mm. And I just couldn't do that to my other two children, let alone risk it for myself. Um, So I tried to get my head around the fact that I wasn't going to be a mum of three that I was going to have two children and I'm so lucky to even have them so I just carried on but I started to just get this and I think when you've when you've had one child and you want more that 
people will understand that feeling of really longing for that third child. Like I just desperately wanted a third child and it's it was an unexpected feeling I thought I could just get used to having two um but I started to feel quite depressed about it like thinking I felt like that was part of my future and it just was I couldn't do it anymore and so my best friend who I went to intermediate with um came to the party and offered to be a surrogate I didn't ask her I never would because I just don't feel like I could have put that burden on someone Mm. she came to me and said I want to do this let's go that's the sort of person she is she'd be like let's sign up tomorrow I said whoa 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 yeah we need to go and talk to your husband she had two children of her own I wanted to talk to her mother to get it all across the line and to be okay like with all of the family because it's not just impacting her it's Mm. impacting all of them too and we dipped our toe in the water went and investigated it one thing led to another and she ended up carrying my son Lockie and we talk about it now and even she says it's like that whole process didn't happen and you've just got this child and it's like where did it come from yeah. It's so bizarre. It's it, so bizarre. Yeah, and he's so cute. Oh, as he's well. the he's the, the chubbiest little munchkin. But he's got the most beautiful face and his eyes. Yeah. Oh, he's big dark eyes. No, he's so beautiful. He he is a little cute. Baby. And that's a really special thing for a friend to do. Like oh. I think that's just honestly, it makes me emotional thinking about. It. It's like the biggest thing someone could do from you. It for is. You. you think how selfless that is that's to amazing. to give up nine months of your life to risk your life because mm. childbirth is fraught with danger. Yeah, and. A she was a super active person as well. So to give up nine months of her life, like she does ocean swims and she runs marathons yeah. and she had to give all of that up, risk her life. She had to have her two kids watch her carry a baby for nine months, which was never going to be a brother and sister to them. Yeah, It's a lot. Yeah, And I, I still to this day cannot believe she did it for me, to be honest. I just think you're an incredible human being. What was that? Exactly. Incredibly. What was that process like for you? to be an expectant mother but to not be carrying the child that was a lot to get your head around I I was really thankful that I'd carried both my first two so I knew what that experience was like because I think if I hadn't done that I would have really felt like I was missing out and Sophie my surrogate also lived in New Plymouth and I was in Auckland so we were four hours of drive apart the entire time and there were definitely moments where I felt a bit sad that I wasn't carrying my own baby Mm. and moments where I felt um, like it that wasn't real and we weren't even having a baby because there was no bump to even look at to remind me that that was my child. Mm. But in comparison, what was my alternative? My alternative was to not have a third child. And mm. you just, I constantly reminded myself that this wouldn't be possible otherwise. Yeah. And um, it's been great to bounce back from the baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. Like the bounce back was great. <laughs> Actually, I think she's bounced back better than me. She's just that type of person. You wouldn't even have known she's had a baby. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, but it was, it was a weird experience and it was weird at the birth because yeah, you've suddenly got this that. baby. What was that like? So you, you know, someone else is carrying your child is your child for you your be- one of your best friends since you were a child and then what was it like because you've given birth to two of your children what was it like being present someone else is giving birth to your baby is that another w- strange experience the whole thing I felt I felt very responsible for all of it like I felt really anxious that um, what happens if I don't bond with my baby Um, because it was my genetic baby but I hadn't carried it for nine months and you know when you have a baby they talked about you know singing to your baby for the nine months and getting into routines well I had none of that but mainly I felt really anxious about Sophie and Mm. how she would cope and she had a c-section and it was pretty aggressive and she looked very pale and suddenly this baby was out and then this feeling of her having this emptiness of not having 
having a baby, I felt very responsible and very worried for her. The moment I saw Lockie, he looked like my baby. And I knew at that moment that we would not have an issue bonding. I just knew. I just went, he just feels like my other two babies. This is going to be fine. But I was really, I had like a horrible feeling in my stomach for about three days of wondering how Sophie, well, not wondering because I was talking to her, but just hoping that she'd be okay with it yeah. all and that she wouldn't have any lasting effects of the trauma of having a baby and then giving it away. Yeah, which does sound very yeah, very scary. The first few days are scary and they are worse than you think they're going to be because all of the hormones are at play. And she was really good because she. I said to her, you need to be honest with me how you're feeling. Yeah. And she talked to me about how it felt empty. And then in the night in the hospital, she heard other babies crying and she didn't have Aww. a baby with her. And it felt, oh. And it wasn't that she wanted my baby. It was just that she... It felt like physiologically, whatever that word is, that she should have one there, Yeah, you know, and she didn't. So that was weird. Yeah, I bet. But then I think after about three or four days, once the hormones calmed down. She was okay? She totally flipped and, but it was a shock to her. And yeah, I bet. And what was the bonding like then with little Lockie? Oh, she is just like his best auntie, you know, she really is. Um, She always says, and it really seems like it, that Lockie knows that she carried him. He gives her this quite knowing look Mm. and he just gazes at her and we feel like they've got quite a special connection yeah it's hilarious because he is super olive with dark brown eyes and dark hair and she has like white blonde hair (laughs) blue eyes and she's fair so it's just you know I see well just as well he didn't come out with blue eyes and fair hair would be wondering whether some genes had just crossed over or something (laughs) what happened there yeah but um they've got a lovely bond and and we have a lot to do with their family we go on holidays with them and we're visiting them all the time so they they almost have a like a an auntie and um, nephew relationship yeah and then what was it like doing breakfast radio with a newborn and then to other children too. <laughs> I felt like I was quite used to it by then. And without the seven sharp at night, um, it actually worked in quite well. Breakfast hours are horrible for the mum, but when you get home, they're really good for the kids because mm. you've got all day to spend with them, even if you are dog tired. But you're dog tired if, if you're a new mum anyway. Yeah. So it's like throwing a few hours like, of work. Tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You just throw in a few hours of work. And yeah. he's 18 months old now. And he's in like, it's a whole new set of um, tiredness because you're running after this crazy kid that wants to rip everything apart yeah and I know that you you've shared a bit on your social media that he looks really like your brother did you have a twin brother I I had two brothers that died actually I had a twin brother who he looks very much like and I had another brother and the weird thing is like you look at my like my sister I've got a sister who is 31 And she has, she's very fair. She's got blue eyes and she's got blonde, blonde hair. And then I'm a bit of a mixture. And my two brothers had olive skin, dark brown eyes and light hair. And that is what Lockie has, Mm. which is really, really weird. So that the male genes in my family have kind of passed through. So you look at photos of my Lockie now and he does look like my brothers at the same age, which is bizarre. Yeah. Is that special for you? It can be quite hard as well. Um, I think it's more special than it is hard, you know, particularly for my mum. I think she looks at her grandson and he's just, you know, a reminder of her sons that she lost. And it's, it has become very special. Yeah. I do worry that he's going to be held up as like this little king um, and get all of the attention. Oh, well. <laughs> sure he wouldn't be complaining about it. I think it. he knows it already, to yeah. be fair. He's like the special child. Yeah, but it is, it is special and we kind of can't deny those similarities. Yeah. And I'm not particularly into that 
spiritual thing of where you, you know, oh, it's a reincarnation of yeah. someone. But he absolutely has their qualities, both in personality and looks, which I think is really nice. That must have been incredibly hard for you and also your family, losing two brothers. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. Particularly my twin brother died when he was 18 months old. So I didn't know a a lot about it at the time, but I I just know through stories from mum and we grew up knowing that. Um, But my eldest, um, the eldest son, Stephen, died when he was 14 and I was 18. And that was devastating for our family. And you can imagine my parents who had already, they'd actually already lost two children because they lost a daughter in between. Yeah. Um, So yeah, it's, it's affected our family irrevocably. But I think by having these grandchildren from my parents now, it's really helped in, you know, sort of healing that. And bringing help, some joy. Yeah, bringing joy and just, you know, it's like people say as grandparents how special that relationship is. And I think for mum and dad it's extra special. It's like, yeah, they mum and dad get to experience a little boy again, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, that's so nice. Now, obviously family time is very important to you and you changed your whole career so you could have that family balance. How do you balance out working in a high like high pressure role and being a mum? Like, how do you? How does that look on a day to day basis for you? It looks different every single day. Uh, like, for example, this morning on radio, um, my husband had promised our eldest daughter he would take her to school today, and then I got in the way. My contact lens fell out during the show, and I'm so blind, like I'm blind as a bat, and I had things to do after work so my husband had to ditch that and come and drop my contact so I'm going to be mud with my eldest daughter (laughs) when I get home but just things like that seem to happen all the time so you have these best intentions Um, for the most part a normal day works quite well because I'm home by lunchtime and I can see my little boy um, spend time with him until it's school and kindy pick up because my eldest two are at kindy and school Um, and I just we we choose to do things as a family a lot. So, um, for example, we're going to Queenstown for our breakfast radio show in a couple of weeks to the New Zealand Golf Open, and I'm taking the entire family with Mm. me. So I'll be working down there, but we'll also have family time. So I do try and combine the two as much as possible. And it does actually, radio is quite good like that because they want you to be, they want you to tell what your life is like and to share stories. And my family is a massive part of that. So they do kind of go hand in hand. But, you know, on any given day, you're do- dealing with dramas and <laughs> you just have to go Little with the flow. dramas as well. <laughs> yeah. I think the number one thing that I've tried to do is to say no to things and to try and clear some of the way, like things that I might like to do. For example, there is the Takapuna Wine and Food Festival on Saturday and I'm just saying no to it because we've got Elton John on Sunday night. I want to spend time with the family mm. and you just can't do everything. And yeah. I think you, you've got to remind yourself to have the days where you just do nothing and hang out. Yeah, especially if it's going to impact on your well-being, you know, and you're going to be tired for the next week. Yep. You've just yeah. got to look ahead because I, in the past I've been quite bad at loading the schedule up and you think it looks like a fine week until you get there and you're like, oh, my God, there's literally no gaps for anything. So just trying to – and I'm, I'm also very aware that Lockie's young and he'll be at kindy soon and I just want to treasure those yeah. moments until he gets to kindy. Yeah. Because once they go and they're at kindy in school, then they're just there all of the time. I mean, yeah. it's a lifesaver. Half the time you're just wanting them to get out the door. <laughs> but I just think these are the years I don't want to look back on 
on it and think I just worked and I worked and I didn't have time to do anything. Yeah. And you you actually miss out because the kids are fine because they are always around people that love them. The grandparents, all this, their auntie, all the nanny that loves them. It's actually you because I don't want to be not a present mum. Yeah. And so it's a constant battle and some days you feel like you haven't got it right. Do you get mum guilt a lot? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like today when I've prevented my daughter from having her dad take her to school. Um, So days like that. But then I also think to myself, my kids have got a bloody good life. You're doing so well for them. Yeah, and I I think they have a great life. They go to great schools. They get to play sport and dancing. They get their parents for a large chunk of the day. Like my daughter said to me the other night, why can't you be here in the morning? I said, you're so lucky. You've got your mum after school every day. I take you to dancing. I'm here to pick you up. Lots of people don't have that because they work until five. Mm. So I I just try and get them to focus on the positives too. Come on, I'm doing my best. She's like, why can't you get a job between nine and two, mum? I'm pretty sure that's what she's wanting. But I do, yeah. So you just have to, I just just think all the time, they've got a good life and, you know, um, they're pretty lucky. You've talked us through some of the things you do to take care of yourself and, you know, saying no and not overloading yourself. What are some other ways? We talk a lot about self-care because I think self-care is so important and how you look after yourself is how you're able to achieve great things in your life. So what are some of the ways you look after yourself? The biggest thing for me, and I've probably only worked this out in the last couple of years, to be fair, is to be in a good mental space and to have that mental clarity. And the only way I feel like I get that is through exercising. So um, often at about 11am after I've done a breakfast show, I'm really dog tired. But if I don't go to my F45 class, which I love at 12.15, then I know that I'm just going to, I don't know, negative thoughts just creep in and oh, I should have gone to the gym and yeah. I'm really tired and you can just find yourself going down that hole mm. of I'm tired oh I should be working out and I've, I've eaten too much lately so if I find if I go to the gym everything else aligns I have I'm way clearer I have more energy I'm not as tired even though you think you're going to be yeah. more tired by going to the gym it's actually the opposite oh, so I think exercise and moving your body daily is so important it is and if for nothing else but the mental side of it I mean yeah. obviously you're going to get the physical benefits but just to have that that clear space of mind because I think most particularly women can you can literally one day feel real down on yourself like oh I've put on lots of weight and nothing fits and I don't know about you but the next day I have not lost any weight but I'm like gum I'm looking great in the stress yeah. I feel amazing our bodies change so much with our cycles as well yeah and it's, and it's also it's also a mental attitude yeah. you know if you want to be down on it then it all perpetuates mm. and you feel that way if you choose to be positive I think that has massive benefits to just everything and I I'm not like a I'm not like a psycho like I love to eat I don't want to I don't food is great yeah I don't want to be having a life of eating like a rabbit but I also want to fit into my jeans and not feel yuck in them yeah so it's such a a balance in that regard precious as well with tv to be thin, you know or to be slim at least yes there are there are and I find like a happy medium for me is when I work out about four times a week and I don't go overboard and binge on food and I I've started doing the best thing for me is at nights I get one of those programs where you can make your meals yeah that's Um, so good yeah And that's a way of controlling. I think having control is crucial. And control to me means having um, 
pre-cooked meals or meals that I can cook that someone else has portioned out that yeah. I don't have control over um, and making sure I go to a gym class. Yeah. And I have to force myself some days. Like yesterday I felt like. Yeah, I, I saw that. And it oh. can be hard some days, especially when you're so tired from doing breakfast hours. Yeah, and I'd been away all weekend for my mum's 60th birthday, so you just don't feel like doing it. But the alternative is to sit there and not do it and feel mentally bad. Feel worse. Yes. Yeah. So – and I've never regretted doing it. So it's just a matter of- You never of, regret you going don't. to the gym. You, you never don't. regret a workout. No. You feel so much better afterwards. Yeah. So I and I, I think, yeah, the exercise, the having the pre-organized food, which I need to get better at, particularly with lunches, because sometimes I'll just get home and I'll just want to binge on peanut butter sandwiches because there's nothing else there. <laughs> um, Easy. So yeah, so being prepared is key. But I also think having a schedule where I look at my week and I don't think I'm overwhelmed because there's so much yeah. in it. I get overwhelmed where I just want to be at home. And I think I've got to make sure I've got enough time at home to feel like I've got my own space in life. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Totally. What are some advice you would give to your younger self? Tony, growing up on the dairy farm in Taranaki, what would you tell her? I would absolutely say don't worry. Don't worry too much because I te- I have in the past tended to be a worrier. Oh, what if what if I don't do that and then that means that and mm. if I don't take that opportunity, what will that mean? I think you've got to get to a point where – you know you're someone that gives everything to life, to your work, to your family. And if you do that, I'm a believer that things will slot into place and things will happen for you. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry as much uh, about where my career was heading because there were times where I just thought, well, what's the next step? And sometimes you don't know what that is. But if you just keep your head down and work hard, then the next thing will just mm. develop in itself. And I think there's no point looking too far ahead like I'm not a huge goal setter that probably goes against what a lot of people might say but I I just think if you put your head down and work in the right direction you're you know you will be discovered or you will be picked up Mm. but also being intentional with what you do so I when I went to TVNZ I just didn't like slot into the internship and do nothing I I did everything in my power to be noticed and to try and get stories on the air so I think you've got to let life happen but you have to be intentional with what you're doing at the time yeah you've got to do the work you absolutely have to do the work but also I I would say uh, there are so many things that make you happy in life and don't think it's just one thing that's going to make you happy it's not just your work you're going to you're going to get joy from your friends your family your work your exercise you know it's not just because I think for a long time I thought career was everything, yeah. but it, it actually isn't. And you you get through in the middle of your career and think, right, it's not just about that now. What else is going to make me happy? And the more you make yourself happy in other areas, your career benefits for it. Yeah. You know? Totally. You've given us so much advice already through your own story. What is some advice you would like to give to women that are listening, that are wanting to, you know, live a balanced life or do incredible things like you have? I would say uh, – You've got to do what makes you happy. So you find out what that is. And sometimes that's easier said than done. Um, Because even me, when I started as a reporter, I wasn't necessarily happy out reporting from nine till six. But when I started um, doing things like hosting the netball, I thought this is actually what I love doing. I get such a buzz from that. So I think finding what makes you happy is the first thing you've got to do. And once you find out what that is, then you look at options in terms of career around that. What are the options here? What are the different branches on what I could do? But I think it's got to start there. And, you know, maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's something to do with food. I don't care what it is. If, you, if it makes you happy, you'll be passionate about it. And 
that's the kind of job you want, I think. Yeah. And the other thing I would say with the balancing of your life is don't be afraid to make decisions you think people won't understand. Um, I've made a lot of decisions in my life that I think people would look at and go, why would she do that? Like leaving seven sharp. Why would she leave that job? But if it's right for you, then you're always, it's always going to sit well with you. And it mm. doesn't matter what other people think about it because yeah. everyone's doing their own thing. And what, what makes me happy might not be the next person. There could have been a host on seven sharp that it would have made them happy to have stayed. But I wasn't going to be happy like that. And so you, you, I don't think you should ever be afraid to make decisions based on what's going to make you happy. Mm. Hey, thank you so much for your time, Tony. You're incredible. And I'm so glad we got to get you on. <laughs> I didn't chew your ear off. Oh, no, I love it. It's a therapy session, Belle. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Self Love Club podcast. Please subscribe for weekly episodes and catch up on apps you may have missed. Reviews and sharing the Self Love Club with your friends and on your Instagram stories helps heaps in spreading the self love message. You can keep up with the Self Love Club at Self Love Club Podcast and at Belle Crawford on Instagram. Plus, find resources and blog posts on my website, bellecrawford.com. We've got heaps of boss babes coming up to empower you through the rest of the year with weekly episodes available each Monday. Catch you soon, babes.